Excellent. All right. Well, um, I want to say good morning and welcome to our uh, study in just war theory. I know that's exactly what uh, we plan to study when we study Easter or when we go celebrate Easter. We're like, let's talk about just war theory. So um, that's what I always think of that and Cadbury cream eggs. So. But as, uh, so as we're getting into it, um, the thing about this um, episode, and I know we've got our uh, visitors uh, here, so uh, this one is going to be, this, this is going to be as interactive as possible, but it is going to be a little lecture heavy, as, as not as dis, um, interactive discussion as we've done um, in the past. Uh, is that screen malfunctioning? Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Yeah. So, all right. Well. We'll deal. So, <laughs> so it may just pop back up in a minute. So we'll see. Anyway, um, so as so as we're getting into it, um, so this is going to be. Just want to give you a heads up. So we're going to be talking about the history of just war theory uh, as we as we're getting into this. So let me go ahead and pray, and we'll jump in. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your mercy and goodness, and we pray that you would bless us as we consider the um, just war theory, what it means to uh, live out the Christian faith in this world where war is a present reality, and how to live it out, to think about it, to reflect upon it uh, as believers. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and uh, um, attentive minds as we consider the history of this uh, of the just war theory tradition, uh, especially as it relates to the church. And we pray that you would give us, use this to help us uh, to spark um, some a, a, a desire to know more, to interact with these ideas, and even as we wrestle with these things, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, so as I said, this is uh, a study that we're doing on just war theory, um, unsurprisingly, uh, um, uh, inspired by the, the, the events that have been going on in Europe lately. And so we said, hey, how can we, uh, and we've been doing actually this material uh, with, uh, we've been doing this study, uh, Matt, Pete, and I were doing this study together uh, with, uh, um, with uh, Navy pilots uh, and uh, instructors and student pilots and any, basically anybody else who wanted to attend uh, because in the military they give a lot of things like um, rules of engagement, ROEs, um, they give things like that uh, or maybe even the law of armed conflict to some degree but they don't really get into things like just war theory and especially from a Christian perspective. And so when um, and so this is a very different situation because normally I'm talking to uh, people who um, men and women who are uh, have either dropped bombs on people or being trained to drop bombs on people, right? And so what is it? What how do we help give some cat? And when we're talking about it with um, with with uh, navy personnel or military personnel, you know, or at you know how do how you know how do we talk to how do I talk to another Christian to help them think about what it means to do that to another person, right? And so, uh, and, and, and so, uh, and how do Christians engage with that? And so, and, and this is something that the military doesn't really talk about. And so, uh, because it's just, because it starts getting into religion and morality and just gets some very uncomfortable and legally great <laughs> places that you can get sued over. So, so the military generally avoids it, but they do allow us to have these conversations. And so we're very grateful for the, um, the encouragement on the base right now, especially the XO uh, right now of the base is um, very much uh, thumbs up. So um, it's wonderful that he's a believer. So, <laughs> so and, uh, and Presbyterian. So uh, he goes down to first press. Now, um, 
So just war theory, as no, um, we went into the basics of it uh, last week, but, um, but, as we, but, when I, but when you find out that just war theory has a history, what does that tell you about just war theory itself? When you find out that just war theory is not brand new, but that it has a history. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, people, yeah, people have been talking about this for a long time. It's not just in the last 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or like it, they've been wrestling with this. And I'll take, we're going to go all the way back to Aristotle today. Uh, so if they, going back, we're going to go back all the way as far as Aristotle. And, and as far, that's as far as we have the records of. Certainly people talked about morality of war, the justness of war, even outside of the Christian uh, tradition then. And so uh, to study just war theory, to consider it, for you to think about it, to talk to someone else about it, is to engage in a grand conversation that has been going on for thousands of years. And so, this is, so the ideas here are understandably complex as we start engaging with them. And so, uh, so what we're just, this today is all about just giving you basically a, a, basically a kind of a historical uh, primer kind of background on the theory of just war. And it's going to introduce some of the topics that we'll be discussing over the study. And, uh, and so hopefully it'll be uh, helpful and informative. And so part of the problem, though, is that I love history. And I know people who passionately do not uh, feel that same way. But, um, but I do. So. so I just tell them tough cookies. So, all right. Slides working again. So we're going to pull. Up, so we're going to begin um, uh, with some uh, with the ancient world, and so these are the the, the big three. Uh, well, the first two there, Aristotle and Cicero, are um, are outside of the Christian tradition. Um, you can look at the dates of their lives and understand why they would be outside of the Christian tradition uh, because they lived in BC, right? So 384 to 322 B.C., Aristotle, and then Cicero, uh, 106 to 43 B.C. Now, Cicero, though, you should know, I mean, Aristotle, Cicero, these are guys that have been studied even by the reformers. They studied these guys. Okay, um, so they, these, these are important people in, uh, in the history, not just of this, but uh, um, of history of even just thought and, uh, and categories and how to think and understand the world. But Aristotle was the first one to use the phrase just war. So this is why we take it back to him. He was a Greek uh, philosopher and, of course, existed in the time before Christ, uh, in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, now his, um, and so what, probably his major contribution here is, um, and and this historical overview largely comes from, uh, a book by a guy named Bell who wrote uh, um, Just War as Christian Discipleship. And so, um, so he does a fantastic historical survey of just war theory. But he said, but he said there that the, the major contribution of Aristotle essentially was to answer the question, what is the purpose of war? What is the goal of war? And that, um, and that, um, that war... Uh, should not be an, uh, an end in and of itself. Like, if, for instance, like the, the Greek city of Sparta, 
you know, made popular by the movie 300. So, uh, so this is Sparta as he kicks a guy down a well. And so just this idea of they, they're just all military society, military, everyone's a trained combatant and everyone's a warrior and kind of like makes a great, uh, like exciting comic book movie, I guess. But, uh, but it's but not actually a good way to run your society. And so he says uh, it shouldn't be like that, uh, that war ought to be waged for the greater good and the greater prosperity, not, um, uh, generally speaking. And, uh, and so, and this, uh, and this came at a time, this was kind of controversial thinking, because at the time, war was mostly about killing, destruction, domination. Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, Alexander, the you know, famous Greek conqueror, he would go to a city and just say, okay, if you give up, we'll treat you nice, and he would if they did. If you don't, we will utterly raise your city to the ground and enslave all your women and children and slaughter all the men. And, uh, and that's what he would do. And, uh, and, and I can't remember if it was Thebes or Thessalonica, but he did that to one of them. And, and, and a lot of other cities gave up because they were like, look what he did there. And that's why they would do that. And which is actually not that uh, off of even some of the tactics that Russia's threatening to do and what they're trying to do, essentially to raise a city and be like, look, see how brutal we are? You better give up. It's a very ancient war tactic. Um, so, uh, so Aristotle kind of got the ball rolling. Then you have Cicero uh, a little bit later, and um, he was a uh, well-known Roman philosopher, uh, wrote a lot about just war theory, and, he, and what he was talking about was that moral law um, does exist, and you can observe it in the natural world. And, and, and so his focus was really on uh, how do you know you have a just cause to go to war, that you have the right to go to war, and that's what he really focused on. And he and he, and he elaborated on that. He t- said things like, "War must be declared. You can't just be in some kind of fuzzy, you know, uh, state. Like uh, if you're going to go to war, it has to be a declared war. We are at war with this people or this nation. Um, it also ought to be a last resort after giving the enemy opportunity to avoid it. And uh, and also he highlighted, highlighted that um, only soldiers ought to fight in war." Um, other uh, so non-soldiers should not be like forced to fight or made to fight, and um, and and he and, and it wasn't completely. And when he says war, he also had some standards for how war was conducted. Um, so that he said war must be won by virtue and courage, and not by treacherous means. And now he didn't really say a lot about just conduct in war. That still was kind of just kind of something he just didn't address. And so the, it, the idea is essentially, if they're the enemy, you can kind of do what you want. So uh, that and so there's no protections for the enemy, for their cities, or for enemy non non-combatants, is what we would call them today. And then we get to Ambrose. Now Ambrose, you can see, is on the AD side of things. Oh, okay. So yeah, so Ambrose is on the AD side of things. He's about 340 to 430 AD. He's a contemporary with Augustine, who we'll get to in just a moment. But Ambrose, um, he went uh, and so Ambrose. He um, is a Christian. He's the first Christian to write um, anything about just war theory. And he was a Roman governor of, uh, in northern Italy before he became a Christian and eventually a bishop in the Christian church. Now, he agreed with Cicero about a lot of the stuff that Cicero wrote, and so, um, and so he, but he went on to write more on it. So he uh, so he actually, whereas, you know, I said Cicero didn't really talk about just conduct, about how to conduct yourself 
with the enemy in war. He talked about just cause, why you should go to war. But Cicero didn't talk about a lot how you should act in war. Well, that's what Ambrose wrote about. He wrote a lot. And so he talked about a lot of the virtues of prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. And so this is, he didn't use the phrase, but this is what we would call just conduct. And, um, and, so, and, and so he would say, if you are conducting a just war and you want to be just in that war, then justice must be preserved in the war as it goes. And uh, he said, even to the point where you will, will forego an advantage in that war, if it's going to cost you your virtue and honor, he would say, then, then you need to give it up. Um, and uh, even if it leads to death and losing, which that's big, big stakes, right? Uh, and he also said that you ought to be merciful toward the enemy once you've won. You know, once you, he, so he was one of the first ones to, to suggest being merciful to the enemy. And so, uh, and so he did. Now, all, a lot of these, I mean, all the way up, you need to understand also, this will help as we think about this, is that um, uh, in, in much of the Christian thinking, especially once Christian, Christianity becomes tied to the Roman Empire and becomes the dominant religion, remember, there is no such thing in the ancient world and all the way up through um, until essentially the founding of America as a separation between church and state. And so when Americans study this stuff, they eventually they kind of go, wait, what's going on? Why are they doing that? Ah, they kind of get kind of icky about some of the things they say because you see this combination of the church and state together. But remember, that wasn't like, that wasn't a thing until much, much, much later. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even in a category of thought until very, very much later. So, all right, well, let's go to Augustine, our next Next guy in the lineup. Now, he is called the father of just war theory in Christianity. He's called the father of just war theory. And so he took a lot of these ideas, and as Augustine does, as a guy who wrote over a million pages by hand, he elaborates on a lot of these things. He talks more about just cause, but what we see in his writings is really the beginning of international law. And, and, he, and he argues in there how human society should be well-ordered for the sake of the harmony and happiness of the whole. And, and so that requires protecting that harmony. And so, and so God's principles of justice and order are good for all people, not just Christians. Um, and, and so and he nuances it. He says, you know, there are different circumstances, different times. He basically says it's really complex and hard. Uh, but he does. Uh, but he also um, responds to the pacifist argument about you know how we shouldn't go to war or ever kill at all. And he says basically, there are two instances where where a government's allowed to kill uh, when they're um, told to by God, essentially, uh, and then um, and also because they have the authority as the wielder of the sword of justice on behalf of God. But uh, Augustine, for me, one of the most interesting things about Augustine is that he argued for just war, the concept of just war, as an outworking of loving your neighbor, which is a very interesting thing to think about. But the idea here is that he said, well, I'll give you a quote. He says, be a peacemaker even in war so that by conquering them, you bring the benefit of peace to those you defeat. Now, that could be taken a very negative way. (laughs) 
Like, I'm going to bring peace to my neighbor by conquering him and taking his stuff, right? It's like, well, no. But uh, the idea there is that, um, is that if you are engaging in a just war, then there is some kind of grievance, there is some kind of wrong that you are trying to right. And so if you can bring it to a swift end, the quicker you can bring it to an end and bring peace, um, then even with the enemy, you are actually loving the enemy nation by bringing peace to that situation. And so that's, that's essentially what he's arguing. He's applying that idea to the concept of war. And, and some, might, some might go, oh, that feels like a bit of a stretch. It might feel a little thin. Um, but the issue is, is, well, otherwise, it's much better to think about how to love your neighbor in war than just to think about what's the most harm I can do to my enemy that I'm legally allowed to do. That's kind of what we do today. So, uh, so for... Um, so for the purpose of war, he talked about how, um, I'll give you another quote. It says, the unjust enemy um, will, uh, the, idea, the purpose of war is that the unjust enemy will turn from their wicked ways, make amends, and rejoin the community of peace and justice. And so the idea here is to get, is essentially to restore the warring nation, the erring nation, the offending nation, back into peace with the community. And, uh, and so, um, but he says, it's, he gives this list, though, of true evils of war, um, which are not death uh, of the enemy. The true evil of war is not death of the enemy, but he says the true evils of war, and he gives a list of them, are the love of violence, revengeful cruelty, fierce, uh, a fierce, uh, fierce and implacable enmity or hatred, a, a wild resistance that is unrestrained, and a lust for power. He said, these are the true evils of war. And I think that's a lot, that, that's a lot we could really dwell on and think about in terms, of what to, in terms of the evils of war, other than simply the loss of life. And, as, um, and now, Sean, this actually goes back to a question you had last week. Um, uh, uh, Augustine, uh, because... Um, Sean was asking kind of like, what level, at what level do you make this determination about whether a war is just, especially like if you're in the military, kind of what level? And we'll, we'll talk about that in the study explicitly. But Augustine, even at that time, wrote that the individual soldier cannot know everything. And so the question of the morality of the war, you can give the benefit of the doubt to your sovereign, to your king, to the, the people who are above you, who are making the decision to go to war, that it rests on their shoulders. And you can give them the benefit of the doubt that you're not in the wrong and serving an unjust war, unless it becomes absolutely clear. All right, so Augustine is the father of, of just war theory. Then we have uh, Gratian, Gratian, however you say it. And uh, he was um, born, we're not exactly sure, but he was born in the 11th century. He died before 1159, we know that. He was an Italian monk, uh, and... Um, and this is where uh, just war theory kind of came into the, into the Roman Catholic Church and really became a very Roman Catholic uh, uh, type thing because uh, this is where um, you get that mixture of church and state real, real, real strong. So it's in, uh, it's in this period. And so uh, he agreed uh, with Augustine about most everything. Um, but he also, this is where he also approved of the church investigating and instigating persecution of heretics, uh, and also wars in defense of the church. 
So it's, it's with great team where that starts to kind of turn and starts, you know, war, you can war on behalf of the church. You can start persecuting heretics. You can, you know, it's not to say that it didn't happen before, but it becoming essentially canon law for the church is, is that is, goes back to great team. And then we get to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, you can see 1225 to 1274, he was a brilliant mind, uh, heavily influenced by Aristotle, and, um, and he, was, uh, he wrote that uh, war must also be for the common good, and there must be a right intent on going to war, that the intention must be true and virtuous. So, uh, and this, uh, he wrote a bit on self-defense as well, and essentially saying that, you know, it's okay to defend your life uh, to um, self-defense. Uh, um, there were a lot of Christian writers who said the, that we did not have the right to self-defense as Christians, that we should not, that we should basically essentially give ourselves to be killed, but as martyrs, essentially. Um, but... Uh, um, but uh, Thomas Aquinas actually said that, no, he said, he said it, you can defend yourself if you're being attacked, um, but uh, you, you can't be, intend to kill the other person. You shouldn't intend to kill them. Uh, that, um, but if they do die as a result of the conflict, but your intent was not to kill them or murder them uh, or whatever, um, then, um, uh, then you, you're not morally culpable. You're not uh, guilty of murder in that sense. So, and... Uh, Let's see here, and there's and there's and that always reminds me of the um, the, the there's a law uh, in uh, in the Old Testament that says basically if someone breaks in your house at night and you kill him, you're not guilty. But if he breaks in your house during the day and you kill him, you are guilty. <laughs> and so and so the idea there is that um, in the night you don't know their intentions. It's harder to see. It's more dangerous. It's a more unknown situation. So. Uh, so if you kill them, you're not culpable because there's so many unknowns. But if it's daylight, then you would be able to see them, and you're able to see kind of what their intents are. And if they're trying to kill you and you take their life, then that, you know that's one thing. But um, but if they're just breaking in to steal something, you necessarily can't you can't necessarily just kill them because they walked in your house. So now a- after um, now after Thomas Aquinas, there's uh, there is basically a um... oh no, it's not sorry. There's a, well, the next guy, that's what we need to talk about. So the next guy is a guy named Francisco de Vitoria. Francisco de Vitoria. So he really is a heavy just war theory guy. Agreed with Aquinas on most things. Um, he added some nuances about cultural tradition, and, um, and, and he really kind of developed, started developing more towards this international law uh, kind of um, outside of the Christian tradition um, as well, kind of combining things together. And he really developed uh, what we call just cause and just conduct. Remember, just cause is the right to go to war, and then just conduct is right conduct in war. And so he really developed these, uh, these things out. Um, and uh, and so, he, so he wrote on things like legitimate authority. Who has the legitimate authority to declare war? You know, if, if, you know, if I just come out and say, you know, we are now at war with Canada, no one's going to care, right? Because I'm not a legitimate authority uh, to, to do that. But if Congress comes out and says we are now at war with Canada, then we're at war with Canada, right? Because they have the right to declare war. So legitimate authority. 
and uh, it's it's is a is a major issue here. Um, also, he uh, wrote about uh, what we call proportionality. Um, you know, we could go and depose the evil tyrant. We've seen this in the Middle East a lot. We can go depose that guy, but we may actually unleash more evil if we do. It actually may be a lesser evil, a better situation to leave this evil tyrant in place than what might happen if we take him out. It's a really hard issue to wrestle with, to figure out what is it, because this guy's clearly bad, but then what, what, what might take his place? And so it doesn't mean that we don't go take out the evil tyrant, but it means that we do need to weigh the options are, are the, uh, before we go do that. Uh, also, um, uh, he wrote it in proportionality. Um, you, know, uh, you know, you may have the right to reclaim something that was taken from you by an enemy, but it may not be worth what it takes to get it back. So, uh, so you know, so for instance, like with Ukraine, uh, Russia came in and annexed Crimea in 2014. Right? So Ukraine might say, that's ours, but we don't want to go through what it would take to get it back. You know, we just, we'll be content with Russia leaving us and giving us the Donbass and giving us the other areas that they've tried to take. They can keep Crimea for now because we just don't want to go through what it would take to get it back. So like that kind of calculation you have to take, that's what's called proportionality. Uh, there's more to it than that, and we'll get into it. But, uh, and, and in, but within that also, um, he wrote about how killing and destruction is only just as long as it serves the purpose of the war. It has to actually serve the purpose of the war. And, and then as far as John, uh, just conduct, how you act rightly in war, uh, he gave a, um, this is where uh, he listed different types of non-combatants. And this is one of the first types of lists we get. And so he's basically saying these are the types of people that should not be killed in war. And, uh, and so now he didn't say that noncombatants could never be killed, but he did write about how they should not be intentionally targeted. Now, if you're trying to take out a, you know, execute a combat operation and there are some civilian noncombatant casualties, then that is, doesn't mean that it's unjust. Um, but as long as you weren't trying to go for them and, and just didn't care, you know, so, um, Let's see here. He does specifically call out very great evils and crimes like um, rape out as, as, as an explicit evil uh, in war. Um, also, plundering. Um, now, this is an ancient view of this, but uh, plundering, he said, it's okay as long as it's necessary for an army because they don't have all the supplies they need. And so, and, and you know, it's, we've seen even in Ukraine with Russia what happens if you don't have your logistics in place. And Russian, and Russian inability to execute their logistics and to get their guys supplied with fuel and things like that have left a lot of um, uh, uh, tanks and, and mechanized uh, uh, vehicles in the field because they simply ran out of gas. And so, and so when you have that kind of an issue, and so uh, especially in the ancient world, it was hard to keep... You could gather 50,000, 60,000 guys together. That'd be a massive army in the ancient world. How are you going to feed them? That was the big question. One of the reasons that Rome was so dominant as a military was because they figured out how to do supply lines, um, whereas, uh, whereas other militaries didn't know. They would just go gather villages together and go fight, and then, they, and then when they weren't fighting, they'd go off into the forest to go find their food. 
And, that, and, then, and when they were doing that, Rome liked to attack because they had supply lines. And they didn't have to go search for food because food was brought to their soldiers. But, um, but again, um, plundering was only as much as necessary, um, only if you absolutely need it, and it had to be under the supervision of officers. So there's even some constraints that's being put on this stuff. Remember, we're going from unconstrained plundering, right? Minimal protections, if any, for the enemy or enemy city saying, okay, you can plunder them, but just what you need, right? And not that that wasn't taken to excess. He also wrote about how um, enemy combatants after the war is over, that they should not be killed if they, were, if they fought justly, um, that you could hold them to ransom, um, ma- making the enemy nation pay you for them, so that way you can recover the cost of the war. And said you can do that. Um, let's see here. He did, say, he did write that you, you could kill them if they intend to regroup and fight. So he said, if they plan to combat with you again, then, then you could execute them. Uh, and uh, he did, he, uh, you know, uh, you can't, after war, you can't go in and kill all the non-combatants because they didn't side with you. And he also wrote some extra bonus protections that only applied to Christians and not to the heathens. So, so there, there, is, uh, there is some of that as well. And... Uh, Let's see here. Now, after, after Francisco de Vittoria, so 1485, 1546, can anyone think of anything that's going on um, right at, around that time? Columbus, mm-hmm. Columbus, yep. And what else? Oh, the Reformation. Reformation, yeah. So this is the Reformation. And so it's interesting that we go from a Catholic monk to a Protestant lawyer. And Hugo Grotius is a Dutch Protestant lawyer, and, uh, and so there's really not a lot written about just war theory, uh, basically, after Francisco de Vitoria. And so, um, and so uh, Hugo Grotius uh, is considered the father of international law when it comes to war. And uh, he was, uh, now, he was really bothered by the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was a religious war between Protestants and Catholics that occurred, that was 30 years long, 1618 to 1648. A lot of people got a bad taste in their mouth about religion after 30 years of war over it. And I think we can understand. That's understandable. Um, And so he desired to couch just war theory in more general or universal terms. Now, he still began from the Christian point of view, the Christian tradition in just war theory, but he he proposed a two-tier ethic. Um, and so, on, on the one hand, he said law, that there was law that every human being could agree upon, that there was a minimal standard of law and just conduct and rules that we could agree upon just as people, no matter what you believe. And, uh, and, and then the second tier was for Christians, was for Christian virtue, which was a higher standard that would apply to believers. Uh, or even Christian nations at the time. Now, the world eventually separated those two and kind of ditched the Christian part and just stuck with the, what's the minimal human, human rules that we can have um, to, to, as the basis of international law. Let's see here. He wrote a bit about preemptive strikes. We'll talk about those later. Um, now, we're getting into all of this and, and talking about all of this because think about all this history we just ran through, okay? And I know that was a lot. It's kind of like, some, you know, some of, our, some of our eyes get as glazed as the donuts that we just had, you know? And so it's like, so um, when we just start going through history slides. 
And, uh, and so, but think about all that history, going from Aristotle to Augustine to, to Hugo Grotius, going all, all the way up, thinking about all these different things, of how do we treat enemies and how we do all this stuff and how it feeds into, um, into how we think about war. And then at, at the turn of the, ninth, the turn of the 20th century, uh, what, what do we have? What happens that affects the whole world? World War I, yeah, all right? And so, and even before that, um, even before that, oh, my thing reset here. There we go. And even before that, we have Napoleon. I threw you off. I, I said in the 1900s. But before that, we have Napoleon on the left there. What do we have on the right? Civil War. Civil War. That is a painting of Sherman's March to the Sea. That may be Meridian. He's burning. I don't know. <laughs> so... But that is total war, right, where it is appropriate to destroy everything in order to defend or gain victory. And then in World War II, we have that which is still debated today, the nuclear explosions, strikes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this is and this is still and 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 because of and as we go on, there's more uh, wars that we call uh, wars: the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, that we that um, and then now we see this war, um, you know, this uh, war in Ukraine, in uh, the invasion by Russia, and this is why just war theory matters. Right? This is why just war theory matters because um, it did blow my mind the other day when I saw we we're like it was like the hundred, you know, we we're at like the. You know, over 100 years, you know, World War I happened over 100 years ago, which is an amazing thing to think about. <laughs> so, um, but that these, that these things are still happening, and they still matter, and how we engage with them, how we consider them, uh, is, is a huge deal. And it's one thing to philosophize and to think about just war theory. It's another thing when the enemy's knocking on your own, own doorstep, right? When your own lives and your own families, and your own, and your own city or town is being threatened by an enemy. And we have the benefit of having oceans, literally, <laughs> between us and others, which help very much to prevent land war invasions. Uh, and, so, um, and, so this, and so this really, uh, th- but, we, but as we're thinking about Europe, as we're thinking about what's going on there, as we're thinking about these things, we need to think about these things and how we've engaged with them. Um, come on, um, as how we've engaged with them in the past. So um, now, choir, you got two minutes before you need to go. So, um, all right. So now, uh, later on, you have the uh, formalization of just war theory in what's called first. Uh, we actually have an example of it in what's called the Lieber Code. And so uh, the Lieber Code, does anyone know, know what the Lieber Code is? This is the code of conduct for war that Abraham Lincoln signed and gave to, his, to, gave to the Union Army as to how they were to engage themselves in the war. And then you have, uh, of course, you have the, uh, the Red Cross there, you got the, which is um, a Genevan uh, who, um, Jean-Henri Dunant, um, he established the uh, the Red Cross, and then in the picture there is from 1864 with the Geneva Convention. You've heard the Geneva Convention mentioned uh, in the news or in movies, where they say that's a violation of the Geneva Convention, right? And so, 
some of these things we still uh, we still hear about, and then um, now. So we need we need to think about this because what is the greatest commandment that Christ gave us? What did he say the greatest commandment was when he was asked? And love your neighbor as yourself. And the principles of just war theory, the two core principles as you think about them, are justice and love. Okay? Justice and love. And again, it's not the, it's a modern question to ask how much damage can I do to my enemy before I get in trouble? That's a very modern question of warfare. But the Christian question question for engaging in warfare is justice and love. How do we do justice in the sight of God? And how do I love my neighbor even when he's got a gun pointed at me across the way? It doesn't mean I don't kill him, but maybe for the sake of his nation and his family, we can bring an end to this war quickly and bring peace to them and to us and hopefully bring us both into a greater prosperity. That idea of approach to war rules out things like absolute domination, just assimilating people into the empire, of just uh, taking all their resources and just we're going to take this over so we can get their stuff. So we need to ask ourselves, as we wrap up this morning, you know, does the United States have a just war culture as we think about it? Do we seek justice and love in war? And as Christians, um, are, are we supportive of just wars? Um, and how do we evaluate those just wars? And the questions are complex. They are challenging, the situations, as, and we'll get into it as we get into this study of uh, talking about just cause and just conduct, discrimination, proportionality, all these things. As we talk about these things in the coming weeks, um, these, these, these questions get really complex and really difficult, really hard when you think about them. Uh, but we do need to think about them. And as, um, and just, and as, and as, as civilians, um, so, well, most of us, uh, as civilians, um, thinking about how do we engage with uh, just war, which is essentially by in supporting the military personnel we know, but usually largely the way that we engage with just war theory is a framing of our own mind and conscience uh, and then also usually ha- how we engage with our elected leaders is largely how, as civilians, we can influence that. But we'll talk about that at the very end in the last, in the last session. We'll talk about that. So um, but that'll do it today. Thank you all. I know it was a little lecture-heavy today. but uh, So next week will be a lot more interactive. Appreciate it.